this Lord's Day, we come to the subject of eating Christ's body and blood. And of course, this passage in John chapter 6 is one of the most perplexing to many people. And out of it arise a great deal of false teaching and blasphemy. But recently we've been speaking on the Lord's Supper and the body of Christ and the bread and the wine which are the symbols of the body and blood of Christ. Now last Lord's Day, we spoke about how God's Word instructs us that He does not dwell in a building or a temple, but meets us in the body of His dear Son, our Lord Jesus. Christ is God with us in His humanity. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Christ is God walking in flesh among His people. True, the physical body of Jesus sits in glory now at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. But Jesus left us His supper, the Lord's table with symbols of bread and wine to remind us of His body and His blood. Thus, these symbols represent Jesus in our midst. In another sense, the Lord's people are His body, the church. We were crucified with Him raised unto new life with Him. We obey Him as the head of the body. We share as joint heirs with Him in His glorious inheritance. And the Holy Ghost indwells us if we are believers. Thus, both individually and corporately, we are knit together with Christ as members of His body. His Lord's table is central to the continual walking of God in Jesus Christ with us. The bread and the wine picture the link between our lives and our Savior. Jesus instituted this supper the very night He was betrayed unto death as God ordained, purposed, and brought about. That is, God ordained, purposed, and brought about the death of Jesus to save His people by dying in our place and for our crimes. Jesus designated bread to represent His body, wounded, abused, torn, mutilated at Calvary. His very physical body is His sacrifice for our sins. Note that there is no elaborate ritual by Christ, only a prayer of thanksgiving. Think of it. Jesus gave thanks for the bread because it pictured His cruel dying to save His people on the cross. What great love is displayed in Jesus giving thanks for His own violent death because it saves us. Then Jesus signified what the wine represents, His blood of the new covenant shed for many for the remission of sin. Here Jesus finally answers the question on many minds and hearts of the Old Testament saints. How can God's new covenant promise to remember the sins of His people no more How can that be carried out while God is perfectly holy and just? After all, God promised that the soul that sins, it shall die. The curse of the law rests upon all men because all have transgressed God's commandments. That curse is eternal wrath and judgment. So how can God be just and justify poor sinners and never recall their sins against them anymore? Jesus at the Last Supper explains that His blood executes that new covenant 
and it is shed for many for the remission of sin. That is, the blood of Jesus, the very life of Jesus, given at the cross for His people, utterly cleanses His people from all unrighteousness. All those who trust in Jesus have their sins completely forgiven on account of His blood shedding at Calvary in their place and for their crimes. And the wine at the Lord's table pictures that saving, cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus. The cup pictures the satisfaction of justice by the sacrifice of Jesus by which His people are forever redeemed. The body of Jesus is not only the tabernacle of God walking among us, it is also the sacred offering God delivered up to save us. So here at the Lord's table we have pictured the One who is God with us in the flesh, but also the One who is God's Lamb that takes away our sin. And for all eternity, Jesus will be our Lamb that was slain for us in glory, still God with us and always our sacrifice, but alive forevermore. Jesus is the only one in whom all our life rests. His very body and blood are our life, and therefore these symbols of the Lord's table ought to be very precious to us. Now, the Lord Jesus often spoke in metaphors that people misconstrued. And at the Lord's table, we see the principal set of metaphors, examples, symbols that Christ ordained. And a lot of people misconstrue Christ's use of these metaphors. And some take John chapter 6 and construct from it a monstrosity of transubstantiation, which teaches that the bread and wine at the Lord's table are literally changed into the body and blood of Jesus and represented by the so-called priest as a propitiatory sacrifice that actually takes away sin. So these people teach that this is a representation of the body and blood of Christ unto God and that it takes away sin from the communicants who have confessed their sin and so forth. In other words, their sins are not taken away by the original sacrifice of Christ, but are rather taken away by this sacramental, sacerdotal representation of the body of Christ. And these people will deny that they believe Christ is delivered up to death over and over again, and yet they say that it is a representation of the body and blood of Christ. And they don't answer the question, why should we need to represent the body and blood of Christ at our communion tables when the body of Christ is present in glory, seated at the right hand of the Father, There's a living sacrifice right there in the presence of glory that intercedes for us. So you see that already you get off into the deep weeds of inconsistency when you teach the doctrine of transubstantiation. But these people teach that the symbol becomes actually the literal body and blood of Jesus rather than the truth that they symbolize and picture those things for us, and so false teachers invest these symbols with saving power. 
But in truth, only the actual body and blood of Jesus save poor sinners. Only the real Lamb of God slain for us can do poor sinners any good. That famous passage in John 6 which we read this morning needs to be understood in the context of why the people were chasing down Jesus in the first place. Because He had fed them miraculously with the feeding of the 5,000. And one of the Gospels tells us that they wanted at that point to force Him to be their king. And you think about how materialistic and crass this is. They never had a king that could just magically produce food and feed them. And isn't that really the kind of government we want? That's the kind of government that the government leaders think they're producing. While we can, we can just magically drum up all sorts of money and food and all sorts of other benefits for people and nobody has to pay for it. It's free. Well, you see here, they thought they had found them the ultimate king to satisfy their carnal desires that He should feed them from nothing and for free. And so they chased Him down across the lake. And they finally cornered Him, if you will, teaching the sort of Messiah they wanted in John 6 at verse 25. When they had found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Notice Jesus doesn't answer their question, but He answers their motive. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek Me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For Him hath God the Father sealed. So you see, He immediately puts His finger on their carnal, materialistic desire that He should continue to feed them. And then He warns them, don't labor after food that perisheth, that is, is here and gone. It's eaten and then a few hours later you need more. But rather for the food that endures unto eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. So He's warning them, you need to follow Me and chase Me down not for the miracles that fed you, but rather that you might receive eternal life from Me. That's the real food. That's the real meat, as they call it in the King James Version, that endures forever. This, of course, was not what they wanted to hear. They sort of divined that Jesus was a little angry with them here. So they asked the question, well, how do we obtain God's pleasure? How do we please God? How do we work the works of God in verse 28? And Christ gives them the answer. Jesus answered, said unto them, This is the work of God that ye believe on Him whom He hath sent. You see, that's not the way they construed their religion at all. It was all about obeying the law, doing this, doing that, complying with the ordinances and statutes. They wanted sort of an inside look at, well, What do we really have to do? Because of course, nobody can obey the law perfectly. If you could just cut it down to the essentials for us, Jesus, we'd appreciate it. Well, He tells them that the work of God, that which is pleasing to God, is that you should believe on Him whom He has sent. That is, believe on Me, the Lord Jesus, 
That's what God wants you to do in order to obtain favor and health. Believe, trust, not of works, but by grace through faith shall ye be saved, the Apostle Paul later would preach. So then they demand of him a sign. The Jews, the Bible tells us, always demand a sign. This is in verse 30. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? They grasped that he said that God wanted them to believe on him. But see, carnal people always figure a way to redirect the discussion around to what benefit is it going to be concretely to them. And so they say, well, then you got to show us a sign so that we can know that we should believe you. So what sign are you going to do for us to show us why we should believe on you? Then they give him a suggestion, a helpful suggestion. Our fathers did eat man in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. You see, that was a good sign that they liked. That God gave them manna from heaven. Free food again, see? So they're back to that again. They're hopefully suggesting that, well, you could do that for us too, couldn't you? And then we would have what we originally wanted from you that you waved us off from. Some free food. That'd be a good sign, wouldn't it? It was a good sign for Moses why the people should believe him. It was healthful and good. But Jesus says this. Verse 32, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. He's saying, first of all, that wasn't a sign that Moses gave the people. That was from God directly. And second of all, my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, which is Myself. And that's much more valuable than that I should give you free food, tangible physical food. The sign that you receive is that I have come down from heaven and my Father hath sent me and He's given me to you as the bread of life. Well, see, they didn't like that sign. It doesn't get them anything that they care about. See, they didn't really care about eternal life. They wanted something right here in the here and now. He's the one that cometh down from heaven. The man that came down from heaven And they think that's a wonderful sign. But when the bread of life comes down from heaven, the Lord Jesus, who offers eternal life, that's not a good sign at all. That's not satisfactory because it doesn't benefit them tangibly and physically. Christ is setting up this metaphorical comparison between Himself and physical bread that people eat to sustain their bodies. But it's not just any physical bread. It's the comparison between the manna which God provided and the bread of Christ which God provided unto everlasting life. But then notice in verse 33, Jesus says, For the bread of God is He which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. So He's made it clear now. Then at verse 34, they say, Then said they unto Him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. See, they're not listening clearly, are they? Not listening carefully. He said, He is the bread of life. But they're still fixated on some physical bread that they can profit from carnally. There's this misunderstanding between the physical bread and the everlasting life found in Christ. Still a misunderstanding. 
still a misconstruction of this sustained metaphor which Christ is using comparing Himself as the bread of everlasting life with physical carnal bread. Now, in John, as I mentioned, there are a number of metaphors which Christ used, which in every case appears to have confused some of His listeners. For example, there is the confusion of water at the well. You remember the Samaritan woman at the well drawing water. Jesus told her that if you if you knew who you were speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living waters. And she thought He meant that she wouldn't have to come to the well anymore to draw physical water. Well, that'd be convenient, wouldn't it? And they got off into a lot of theological topics before she finally agreed that He's the Messiah. And then, of course, in John 2, there's the confusion about the temple. Remember, He tells the Jews, destroy this temple, and three days I will raise it again. And He spoke of His body. This metaphor was brought up against Him at His trial, once again, distorted and misrepresented. And then in John 3, He speaks to Nicodemus about being born again. And Nicodemus thinks he means, can I enter my mother's womb the second time and be born again? But he was speaking of spiritual birth by the Holy Ghost, without which you cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in John chapter 9, I'm sure I'm skipping a bunch of them, just called them up from memory, there's this play on the word blindness. You remember Jesus healed the blind man. And the blind man came to him after he'd been healed and Jesus asked him, do you believe in the Messiah? And he said, Lord, show me who is the Messiah. And he said, I that speak to you am he. And he fell down and worshiped him. Well, that made the Pharisees really angry. They had already kicked that poor blind man out of the synagogue. And then Jesus said, I'm coming to the world to make those who see blind and to make the blind to see by which He was speaking metaphorically, not of physical blindness. Jesus did give blind people physical sight, but He he never took away a person's physical sight and gave them blindness during His ministry. He's speaking spiritually that the people who think they understand and see, He will by His ministry and gospel prove that they are actually spiritually blind people And vice versa, those people who are spiritually blind will hear the Gospel and the Holy Ghost will convert them and then they will become people who can see spiritually whether they be physically blind or not. And the Pharisees then ask Him, "What are you you saying we're blind? And He says, well, if you had known you were blind, you'd be without sin. If you understood spiritually that you're blind and you need a Savior, there would be hope for your salvation. But because you say, oh, we see clearly enough, spiritually speaking, then therefore your sin remains with you. And then in John 10, Jesus calls Himself the door by which if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. And then he talks about his sheep, hear his voice. He's not talking about literal sheep. He's talking spiritually about his people being his sheep, whom the Father has given to him, who will all come to him, and none of whom will he lose. 
And then in John chapter 11, he says that Lazarus is asleep, but I go to wake him. And they say, oh, well, it's good if he's sleeping because he's sick. That'll probably help him to heal. And then he says plainly, Lazarus is dead. So there was another example of a metaphor, sleep for death. And the Apostle Paul uses that metaphor to describe the death of believers as being mere sleep whom Christ can awaken Himself. It's easy for Jesus to wake up His people from the dead. So here are a bunch of metaphors. Of course, at the Lord's table, which is not found in the Gospel of John, He uses the metaphor of bread and wine, spiritual bread and spiritual wine, attached to the physical bread and wine of the communion service to represent His body and His blood. And by that metaphor, He doesn't mean, as we've already said, that this bread and this wine are His actual body and blood, but rather that they're symbols. So then in verse 35, Jesus once again repeats, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to Me shall never hunger. He that believeth on Me shall never thirst. So here He reasserts this spiritual metaphor that He is the bread. He is the water of life. Whoever comes to Him, whoever trusts in Him, will never hunger and never thirst. Cometh and believeth. Metaphor is explained here quite clearly. But of course, they're not satisfied. Then Jesus discusses, in a passage we've covered many times, how nobody can come to Him without the Father drawing Him. And what the end is, I will raise up My people that trust in Me unto everlasting life. He talks repeatedly about him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. He that believeth on me, I will raise him up at the last day. Again, it makes it very clear that the method of coming to Christ is not the eating of literal bread and the drinking of literal blood, but rather it is receiving those things by faith in the promises of the Lord Jesus. He is not speaking at all of physical nourishment or sustenance for this life, but rather spiritual feeding upon the bread of life unto everlasting life. Received by faith. At verse 47 of the text, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on Me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. So Christ repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly makes it clear that this metaphor operates by faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus to be the bread of life. Then at verse 48, I am that bread of life. He's already said that once before or more than once before, but He repeats it here. Christ provides real life analogously like how bread provides food for physical life. But the bread of Christ, the everlasting bread, the bread of life which Christ's body is, is unto eternal life. Then at verse 49, he reiterates and ties down this metaphor which is related to the manna that they received in the wilderness. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. 
This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So the bread that came down from heaven, the manna which they all are eager for Christ to replicate so that they can be fed for free, he points out to them that all the people that ate that bread are long dead. It wasn't unto everlasting life. It was just physical bread. But I'm the living bread. If any man eat of this bread, he'll live forever. The bread I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And therein we see an early veiled reference that Christ makes to His dying in order to give life. I will give my flesh. I will give my flesh for the life of of the world. But of course they object. The Jews therefore strove among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? You see, they've just gone off the rails again. They've missed the whole metaphor. They've skipped over all the parts where it said they should believe in Jesus unto everlasting life. He said, if you believe in me, I'll raise you up unto everlasting life at the last day. But they skipped over all that. They're so fixated with free bread and with manna, with Christ teaching that He's the bread of life come down from heaven, that they go off into this faulty thinking that Jesus is telling them they have to eat His actual flesh. And then Jesus responds in verse 53, Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, ye have no life in you. Jesus doubles down on the metaphor, you see. If they're going to get hung up on it, they might as well get hung up on it all the way. Whoever eats the flesh of the Son of Man and drinks His blood, if you don't do that, you'll have no life in you. Whosoever eateth My flesh and drinketh My blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. Well, He's already said, whoever believes on Me will have eternal life. So he's already explained the metaphor that eating the body and drinking the blood of Christ is a spiritual sign of believing on Christ that He will do what He has promised and He will raise all who trust in Him unto everlasting life. Read in the context of the prior teachings, you see, He that believeth on Me hath everlasting life. Jesus, you see, is completing the metaphor that He is the bread of life. Obviously, if you're going to have a metaphor about being the bread of life, then the metaphor will be extended to including that you need to eat that bread. Just like if you were going to live physically from the manna, you needed to eat the manna, obviously. So He is completing that metaphor that He is the bread of life. Just like we eat physical bread, literally, to live, so we eat the body and blood of Christ, the bread of life, metaphorically, to receive everlasting life. We eat it, as it were, by faith, through faith. And that eating of Christ is to believe on Him unto everlasting life. Nothing could be clearer. All of this is an extended metaphor comparing physical bread to spiritual bread, 
physically eating the physical bread, spiritually feeding upon Christ the spiritual bread of eternal life. But Jesus is hinting at something a little more profound than that. He is also teaching this, that His very body and blood are central to the giving of everlasting life to His people who trust in Him. There is the spiritual metaphor, but there is also the physical reality that He will literally give His flesh and His blood to save His people. And that trust in the Lord Jesus will soon be shown to be trust in the sacrifice that He made as God's Lamb and that thereby we spiritually partake of, we feed upon the body and blood of Christ in the spiritual metaphorical sense that we receive from His very body and blood, we receive life eternal, forgiveness of sin, escape from the wrath to come and the judgment. You see, the slaughter of His body and the shedding of His blood at Calvary are the sacrifice by which He redeems us and gives us eternal life. My body, which is broken for you, He said, when He instituted this Lord's table. My blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sin, He said. You see, at the Lord's table, He's creating yet another spiritual analogy or metaphor. The physical bread, which is at the Lord's table, it stands as a symbol of the body that He gave on the cross to save us. The wine at the Lord's table represents spiritually the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for the remission of sin. Our eternal life flows from the real physical offering up by Christ of His actual body and blood to give us life to give us everlasting life. And therefore, by the metaphor of Christ as the bread of life, we feed upon Christ's body and blood by faith and His offering up of His actual body and blood is the source of our forgiveness and redemption. Christ answers the objection of some who cannot grasp His teaching at verse 60. Many therefore of His disciples, when they had heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew it Himself that His disciples murmured at it, He said to them, Doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where He was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are Spirit, and they are life. You see, if Christ ascends to heaven, obviously we won't be eating his physical flesh and drinking his physical blood. And then he says this, I'm not speaking of a physical process by which you eat my physical flesh and obtain life. Rather, I'm speaking of the fact that the Holy Ghost regenerates you unto everlasting life. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. You see, it's the gospel teaching of Christ by which men through faith lay hold of and feast upon the body and blood of the sacrifice. I'm telling you the truth, he says, 
about how by my flesh and blood all who trust in me obtain everlasting life. And so my flesh and blood are spiritual food unto the eternal life of every person who trusts in me. Even as my physical flesh and blood are a real sacrifice that takes away the sin of my people. So you see at the Lord's table, Jesus gives us the symbols of His body and blood to portray the spiritual food through which we obtain everlasting life by faith in the flesh and blood of Jesus on the cross for us. So there are layers at the Lord's table, layers of physical symbols atop spiritual metaphor, all pointing to the real body and blood of Christ, sacrificed for the saving of His people. For everyone that calls upon Him in faith, His body and His blood becomes our very life and health and hope for all time. And now seated at the right hand of God, the Lord Jesus is representing before the throne of mercy that body and blood in physical tangible form before the God of all glory and making intercession for His people. You see, He can plead not spiritual metaphor, not physical symbols, but the real flesh and blood. That's the real sacrifice that really takes away sin. That there is presented by Him. That's why the Lord's table could never be a representation, as we said earlier, of the body and blood of Christ. Christ is already there as the high priest perpetually presenting in glory His body and His blood as the only hope of salvation for everyone that believes. And so we come to the Lord's table. And as we partake of this bread and this wine, we, we ought to consider what it points to, what it symbolizes, what it means. We ought to be reminded how in what it symbolizes all of our hope and life and joy and salvation are founded entirely. Nothing that we do, none of our works can save us, but only the flesh and blood of Jesus given as an offering for our sin. You remember the songwriter put it this way, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Praise God. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table. First, for the bread that pictures the body broken for us. O oh God, our Father, we come to You thanking You that You sent down the bread of life from heaven, that He made Himself an offering for sin at the cross, and that His body was tormented and abused and mocked and spit upon and torn asunder and pierced unto death. And that in that very body offered up as our sacrifice lies all of our hope for everlasting life. It is our life. Help us to feed upon the body of Christ in our hearts and to be reminded of it in this symbol of the bread which Jesus ordained that we should partake of at His table. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
And the Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask my father if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us. And the Scriptures tell us after they had supped that he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 191 in the black book with Jesus in our midst. Faith eats the bread of life and drinks the living wine. And we in love together knit on Jesus' breast recline. Number 191.